you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Today, we're very pleased to have with us from the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, Professor of Epidemiology and Community Health Sciences, Dr. Robert Kim Farley. Dr. Kim Farley, so good to have you back with us today. Larry, pleasure to be here with you. Um, We all have to be just feeling so much better about where we are now. Mindful, of course, that things can turn with future variants. But, uh, boy, it's so much better to be in the place we're in right now than where we were just uh, a month ago. I fully agree with that. Well, let's talk a, a little bit about our mindset, uh, Dr. Kim Farley. How how are you sort of thinking about the risk of COVID-19 now with cases dropping so precipitously and hospitalizations dropping? What What's sort of a healthy mindset to have about the coronavirus? Well, I think really, uh, you know, we are seeing this light at the end of the tunnel that we face now with the Alpha and then the Delta and now the Omicron uh, variants that uh, you know hit us very hard with large numbers of cases, uh, quick surges, hospitalizations, etc. And uh, the encouraging thing is that this looks like it's getting behind us now. Rapidly falling cases, hospitalizations, um, and I think that uh, this very much bodes well for us. I think the only curveball that could be waiting for us in the wings would be another variant. But barring that, uh, I think we're on a very good trajectory to getting back to if not exactly completely normal, but certainly getting to where it seems a much more normal type of life again. We have parts of California that have considerably lower rates of vaccination, rural communities. Um, We have uh, African-American majority communities, Latino majority communities that have lower rates of vaccination. And so what are the comparative risks for those communities as we move forward or the fact that, you know, so many people have had COVID at this point or have been fully vaccinated or even boosted? Does that protect those that aren't? I think the main thing to realize is that we still see disparities uh, along racial lines, economic lines, uh, poorer people having less vaccination rates than wealthier, uh, the problem of uh, hospitalizations uh, greater in uh, people of color. All of these things um, are reminders to us of the inequities that we do see in our society, uh, the systemic racism that has existed in the past, such that we need to make sure that even as we reduce numbers of cases, we begin to more and more open up things, shall we say, that we're not leaving behind 
those persons that really still are remaining um, somewhat largely unvaccinated. We need to continue our efforts for vaccination to make sure that we're not uh, uh, leaving people behind in this. What's the role for public health in in finding better ways of 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 helping people improve their overall health because you know, we've we've heard a lot the term comorbidities, things like uh, being diabetic, uh, being obese, um, having high blood pressure, that are contributors to severe COVID and are are associated quite commonly with deaths from COVID nineteen. What are some of the ways for for public health entities? to uh, help all of us improve our health so that we're better prepared for whatever illnesses come our way in the future? Uh, Larry, that's a good point. I think that uh, the role of public health, firstly, is to identify that these disparities exist. And I think, again, as you see in Los Angeles County, we've gotten very good statistics about uh, racial groups, uh, economic groups, geographic groups and the disparities that exist in residents in those areas. So I think that's one thing is to draw attention to these disparities. So I think that's one thing that we're doing a good job of. The second is then to be working with uh, outreach activities, especially in uh, disadvantaged and vulnerable communities to make sure, for example, we have mobile vaccination uh, clinics there, which we do uh, for COVID, for example, uh, that we have people outreaching to homes, to community groups, to um, faith-based groups, to get the message and the education out to people, especially done by people that they uh, may look up to. It could be sports figures, it could be community leaders, um, pastors and ministers in their church, um, synagogue, or um, mosques. So I think we need to make sure that we're reaching out with the public health messages about protecting one's health, what you can do about improving one's health, and also make sure that we have community facilities available, parks, recreation facilities, safe uh, roads, and um, safe playgrounds for our children. All of these things are parts of what public health needs to draw attention to and then work with their partners. It's all not done by public health. Some of these things are Department of Transportation or roads and streets, et cetera. Uh, but we need to realize that everybody has a part to play, all government agencies, all community-based agencies, and also us as individuals. We're talking with UCLA School of Public Health professor, Dr. Robert Kim Farley. If you have questions for him about COVID-19, about this phase that we're moving into with, um, you know, we have some of the last masking requirements here in California that are being done away with, I think, you know, pretty soon you're going to be seeing people largely without masks. Some of us will continue to mask, particularly in in certain indoor public spaces. Uh, At least that's my intention today. Uh, We were talking with Dr. Schreiner earlier. She said she's still, when she goes to the supermarket, going to wear a mask and at airports and other, you know, transit places on planes. So, um, you know, as as we move into this period, we're going to be seeing people looking very differently. And, and, And Dr. Kim Farley, what are some of the factors you think we should consider as to whether we continue to mask or not? Yes, Larry, I think it's uh, an important point that uh, as we move to dropping mask mandates, uh, it is still being strongly recommended to wear masks indoors, especially in crowded places when we still have high levels of transmission. But that said, I think it's going to now become more and more an individual decision. 
If you're elderly, if you have, again, multiple morbidity, uh, medical conditions, if you are immune compromised, things like this, those are what is going to make a determination as to whether you feel comfortable um, going into a place without a mask. And so I think we need to make sure we're not stigmatizing people who wear masks either. We should all recognize it's a free choice when it's no longer a mandate. And everyone has to find out where along the continuum of risks versus the benefits of not having a mask on, people will fall. Yeah, for a lot of us, it's it's not a political statement. It's a health calculation. Exactly. Um, so, so hopefully that's the way it'll be perceived. Um, the Associated Press um, is, is reporting that the demand for vaccines has collapsed so much in the U.S. that states are having a difficult time figuring out what to do with the expiring doses of vaccine that they've got. AP reporting millions of doses have already expired and gone to waste. What are the challenges with getting those vaccines to countries that have low rates of vaccination and and you know because i'm i'm sure for a lot of listeners think well why can't we just send those somewhere else where there's need yes so there is uh effort as you've um mentioned about the need for uh vaccination in other countries as well they're so you know desperate for getting vaccines uh the u.s in its new plan for uh national plan for covid has mentioned about the importance, one of the, the pillars of that plan is to provide 1.2 billion doses of vaccine to countries uh, in need. And I think what we need to do is to make sure that our systems of distribution of vaccines, where we're very effective now in getting vaccines out to places here in the United States, is also needs to be equally effective in recognizing early on that looking at the projections is going to be an oversupply and to then move the vaccines in the other direction to make sure that we can then also assist other countries. But it has to be done in a systematic way with agreements between other countries to understand what uh, we're going to be sending them. Uh, so it's it's all a matter of, uh, uh, you know, working together to develop a system in the opposite way, if you will. Yeah, and the complexities involved, even, you know, with mRNA vaccines, of course, um, the very cold uh, transport that has to be involved in that. Then you have to have some channels, as you're suggesting, to, to actually administer the vaccines in in places so um even though we've been at this for over a year uh, it's it, it's very complicated uh we have uh some additional news uh ap reporting the nfl has suspended all aspects of its covid 19 protocols citing recent trends showing the spread of the coronavirus is declining in an agreement with the players association the league sent a memo to the 32 teams today in which it mentioned encouraging trends regarding the prevalence and severity of covid 19 the evolving guidance from the CDC, changes to state law, and the counsel of our respective experts as reasons for the move. Should the NFL find reasons to reimpose any aspects of the protocols, it will do so in conjunction with the NFL Players Association. Teams are required to remain in compliance with state and local laws and may continue reasonable measures to protect their staff and players, according to the memo obtained by the Associated uh, press. Regardless of vaccination status, players and staff no longer must wear face coverings at team facilities, though each club can require it individually. Social distancing signs no longer required as well. Um, I guess all of this sort of a big experiment, Dr. Kim Farley, to see what comes next. 
Yeah, I think it's again a part of just like we're seeing, uh, you know, in areas where again masking can uh, now be voluntary as compared to mandates. We'll also see this happening in sports uh, teams and sporting venues for that matter. Changes as we begin to come back to a more, uh, quote, normal uh, situation where we are now living with the virus endemically, recognizing that we have some powerful tools now with vaccination, with boosters, with um, new uh, antiviral treatments that can prevent hospitalizations up to 90%. And uh, all of these things make it so that it becomes a safer area in which we can operate and reduce some of our measures. But as you pointed out, the NFL also mentioned that they will continue to monitor the situation and, if need be, reverse and put back in some of these uh, requirements as well. We're uh, talking with Dr. Robert Kim Farley, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, Professor of Epidemiology and Community Health Sciences. We're at 866-893-KPCC or email us as Stephen LaCanada did at atcomments at kpcc.org. Steve says, I'm sorry, Steve tweeted at us, my uh, mistake. Scientifically, is there any reason not to think there'll be another Omicron wave this fall or winter when natural and vaccine immunity wane. Will enough people get another booster this fall to present to prevent such a wave? Steve, it's a good question. I think uh, time will tell. But um, yes, there is waning immunity, but not so extensively that I would anticipate that we would be in a very vulnerable situation like we were with the Omicron uh, this last winter. Uh, so I think that uh, we will potentially see some increases just because people will be together again more as winter comes in next year. But I anticipate that we'll have a lot of immunity from both vaccines as well as from those who acquired disease, that uh, it should be a blunted uh, increase. But I think the main thing that's still the wild card is whether we actually would ever see another variant arising and that's always possible i don't want to make it uh, seem like it's a definitely going to be a problem but i think we have to realize that's always on our radar public health is you know extensively looking at surveillance around the world for detecting such new variants determining what their characteristics are and determining whether we need to put in new um tools in our armamentarium, so to speak, to address them, whether we need to tweak our vaccines with new formulations, uh, whether we need to go back to some of these other uh, things like masking mandates, if we actually suddenly saw a new variant with different characteristics that, uh, again, threatened us. But I think we now have more and more confidence that we can address these, and in a timely way should that occur. Michael in San Dimas says, epidemiologically speaking, haven't we heard this song before, if the spread is slowing, shouldn't we leave them on until it's down, until there's almost no spread at all? We keep doing this. Um, Dr. Kim Farley? Yeah, I think that uh, because of the trends uh, being so rapidly declining here, I think that uh, it's it's timely to remove the mandates, uh, but it's also timely to continue to strongly recommend masking, uh, especially again for anyone who is vulnerable. And I think we will, um, you know, in a few weeks, see the results of whether we need to again tighten up a little bit or not. But my guess is at this stage. We are in a definite downward trend. So many people have uh, gotten vaccine, or especially now, so many people have gotten Omicron, probably half the population in the United States at this stage, 
that um, I think that we are in a much more safer territory to start being able to relax some of these uh, uh, mandates and uh, be able to, again, think of this as an endemic disease, one that's with us, and we all have to measure our own sense of vulnerabilities and our own risk-benefit uh, decision-making at this stage. I, yeah, and I, th- I think, yeah, along with what you're just saying uh, in response to Michael's question, I think that the public support for mandating masking has declined so much that it's it it it's sort of um, it's almost forced on public health officials. And obviously, the numbers provide the support for doing it. But I I think you're at the place where so many people, given the numbers now, are willing to take the risk and don't see it as significantly high risk. Now, that doesn't necessarily defend against a future variant coming up, but I think these things only work if you have, uh, you know, large numbers of people who are willing to support them. And Dr. Kim Farley, is that part of the calculus for public health officials? Uh, Larry, I think so. I think, you know, we often talk about following the science, but um, in my mind, there's actually three sciences that we need to follow. One is the biologic science, which is typically what we use when we say that term, um, which is, you know, looking at the variant, the disease itself, the effectiveness of vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. However, there is also um, behavioral science, which is what will people actually do. And that's one reason why, for example, it moved from a 10-day quarantine down to a five-day quarantine, recognizing that only a third of the people will actually following the 10-day guidelines. Much better have higher numbers of people following the five-day guideline, which has the most uh, infectious period of time. Uh, So a behavioral science looking at that. And finally, I think there's a political science involved here as well, is what does the uh, society accept and uh, uh, do. So, for example, in in China, where we had the extremes of forced isolation, forced quarantine, forced vaccinations, forced testing, that would never uh, be able to be conducted here in the United States. So uh, we have our own political realities. And so I think the sciences, the biologic science, the behavioral science, and the political science all having to come together and finding that sweet spot that does the maximum benefit. We're talking with Dr. Robert Kim Farley, UCLA School of Public Health, just real quickly because um, we're, we've gone over on the time, uh, but I'm learning so much from you as always. Uh, the BA2 variant, um, we know it's been here a long time and it just does, it hasn't garnered a toehold like it has in other places. Why not? Well, I think it's just a matter of time, uh, Larry. I think that uh, that BA2 now is uh, something like 3.8% of all the uh, variants here in the United States, but uh, it is expected to rise. Like you can example is, is Denmark. It went from 20% to 66% in less than four weeks uh, earlier this year. So I think it's just a matter of time because it is more transmissible, but fortunately it's not more severe. And so mm-hmm. I think that's uh, what we need to realize too. Dr. Kim Farley, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. All the best uh, to you and your colleagues at the Fielding School of Public Health. We appreciate it. And to you, Larry, and your listenership as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle.
This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.